I was just reminiscing sitting there, and I realized that my first religious liberty sermon that I ever gave was Religious Liberty Sabbath 1990. And I have been giving them regularly since. And since I've been giving the Religious Liberty Sabbath sermons, I've seen this steady deterioration of our freedom. And Senator Paul, that was Senator Rand Paul, by the way, who gave you that presentation. Um, and after I was watching, I said, why did I do that? I'll never be that good. Um, he's got some cool suave to him. Um, but at any rate, what he's telling us is, and what I'm realizing, is religious liberty in America is not yet dead, but it's got a terminal illness. And the terminal illness is the, the conflict between an ever-growing government, which is now intruded in every aspect of our lives. And with it intruding into every aspect of our lives, it's naturally going to confront and butt heads up against our religious freedoms. Now, what Senator Paul was really saying is we must stop thinking like constitutional lawyers and start thinking like Martin Luther and how he dealt with religious freedom and religious liberty. Now, when you try to understand the United States framework and the United States and how it became the country it is and the great religious freedom that has quite frankly spoiled us, you must first go to um, the, looking at the country as it, as it started. You'll hear a lot of people say, we were a Christian nation, and we started as a Christian nation. Well, that's true. We started as a Christian nation, yes. But we were many branches of Christianity. In, in New England, you had my brothers, the Puritans, and, and with their Reformed theology. And if we stuck with them, we'd be fine. Um, <laughs> in in um, Virginia, you had the Church of England. In Rhode Island, you had an amalgamation of all faiths. In Maryland, you had a, a small group of Catholics. So when they, when they said we need religious freedom and you say we are a Christian nation, what kind of Christian nation were we? We were a diverse Christian nation. So what they did was they came up with a Bill of Rights. And the First Amendment, the United States Constitution, in fact, we didn't call them amendments until we added to the ten, first ten. They were called the Bill of Rights. The first sentence of the first right. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. We are not in the business of creating or being part of building religions or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Religion should be left alone and they should be able to exercise as they will. But again, as government has invaded every aspect of our life, we are now, it's now in conflict with the First Amendment. With government always, always, always trying to control what we do and how we do it, we run into problems. Now, what was Senator Paul talking about? Senator Paul was talking about this. It's an article. Um, the city of Houston has issued subpoenas demanding a group of pastors turn over any sermons dealing with homosexuality, gender identity, or Anise Parker, the city's first openly lesbian mayor. And those ministers who failed to comply could be held in contempt of court. It was not long ago, brothers and sisters, that we would not have dreamt of doing something like that. Nobody would have the guts to subpoena a pastor about their sermons based upon the First Amendment. But in the day and age we live in, that's what's happening now. Another problem that we're having is 
there's a huge push in Congress, local Congress, uh, state Congress, and the federal Congress about the tax-exempt status of churches. And, you know, we're doing the Bible in a year right now. And um, I saw where the tax-exempt status came from. It came from Joseph as uh, he was setting up how you had to pay the... um, how you had to pay Pharaoh, the priests didn't have to pay the tax. So tax-exempt status goes all the way back there. And really the idea was churches do good. Churches do great things. We should allow them to do good in their communities, and therefore we will not tax them. Well, with the tight budgets in government, the tight problems, they're very concerned. And this is my favorite. This is a study from the University of Tampa. Don't you always like how when they say in government, if they don't collect tax money, it's a cost to government? That didn't cost government anything. It just means there's more money they didn't forcibly abscond from the citizens. <laughs> cost? What did it cost them? But $71 billion. They're sitting there looking at $71 billion that should flow into their coffers. That is not. Now, what, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, Rand Paul kind of told us what we needed to do. And I, don't you love that comment by Rand Paul? Dissent is the foremost of freedoms necessary to restrain, to restrain despotism. That's so true. If we don't have the right to dissent, we have no rights at all. Now, the time is coming in our government when dissent and religious freedom will no longer be there. And the Bible tells us that. We have been spoiled rotten in this, in this country. Now, Senator Paul gave me the idea for this sermon. You know, the concept of we must obey God rather than men has been a concept that has permeated the Christian experience from the day of Christ till now. The, the sermon, I mean, the scripture we heard today is, you know, they dragged Peter and they said, Peter, we told you not to preach about Christ. We, are we going to obey God or men? Then, That was, you know, when they're under Jewish oppression. Then it became Roman oppression. And they were told to denounce their faith. Are we going to obey God rather than men? And then from Rome, it went to the Church of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church then became the church. The Roman Catholic Church reigned for 1,500 years before somebody dissented. And that somebody was Martin Luther the exact guy that Senator Paul is talking about. And I really agree. If we want to understand how to deal and how to protect our religious freedoms, we better start thinking more like Martin Luther than thinking like, you know, constitutional lawyers because that that game's on a slow road to loss. So to understand Luther, we have to understand who he was. Martin Luther was born in 1483 in Germany into a world with zero religious liberty. The Catholic Church, much like our government today, it was involved in every aspect of the citizens' lives. It was the Christian faith. There were no other Christian faiths. It was it. Every single single thing you did in your life was affected by the church. The Bible was held by, by the church only in Rome. It was interpreted by Rome, and its interpretation was the only acceptable interpretation. Christ was taught to be an unforgiving a judge who, if you broke his laws, you would have to pay a severe penalty. And the only way for you to get clean is to go into the confessional and confess to God through a priest your sins, 
Your soul is clean. You're good until you sinned again. And then when you sinned again, you had to go back to confession. So what you did, I, you know, I went to 12 years of Catholic school, and this is what really kind of blew me away about it, is it's like the roulette wheel of salvation. Is w- wherever death occurs on that wheel and where you are between the confession and, and sin side is when you, whether you're saved or not. So they, they, they mold, God molded Martin Luther from the very beginning for, for his role. Martin Luther was born into a family of seven kids. He was the oldest of seven. And he was terrified by the teachings of the Catholic Church. And he worked his life as hard as he could to comply with the teachings of the Catholic Church because the images that they had, the art of hellfire and damnation, petrified him. At the age of 14, Martin Luther, his his dad was a, a minor. And his dad started off as a miner and then bought mines, and he ended up being pretty well-to-do. Well, he wanted his son to be educated. So by the age of 14, Martin Luther was fluent in Latin. Latin was the language of the educated. And, you know, so educated people all over Europe could speak to each other. They spoke to each other in Latin. It was also the language of the church. By 21, he had a master's degree. And from his master's degree, his dad had this dream that he would go to law school and become a lawyer and have a great, great career being a lawyer. So Martin Luther went off to law school. Well, then, in an in a odd thing of numbers, and I know some of you guys get into all these numbers things. I don't think there's too much here. But every five years, in these five-year cycles, huge things would happen in Martin Luther's life. The first one was 1505. 1505, Martin Luther is on his horse going back to law school after visiting his parents. And guess what happened? I think God's hand was here. An incredible thunderstorm happened. A bolt of lightning strikes right by his horse, knocks him off. He is petrified. He's, he's shivering in fear. And he prays to St. Anne. St. Anne is the patron saint of minors. And I remember as a Catholic, you had a patron saint for everything. If you lost something, you prayed to a saint. If you had, you know, if you had heartache, you prayed to a saint. There's a patron saint for everything. Well, St. Anne was a patron saint of minors. And he said, St. Anne... Save me, and I will become a monk. And true to his word, he became a monk. And I kind of I, I was wondering how God must have been smirking during that prayer. Um, but he came, became a monk. And true to his word, he went to the monastery. And now here's a problem. You have an acute legal mind going to a legalist church. You got a problem. Because Martin Luther became a neurotic. He... He went to confession 20 times a day on certain days. He would, he would go to confession for two hours. If he forgot a sin, he'd flip out and run back and confess that one. And he tried his hardest. And the law ground him to a powder. Next big event. 1510. His monastery asked Martin Luther, okay, we need to be represented in Rome, and we ask you and another priest to go down to Rome and represent our church there. So you love this. They have to walk from Germany to Rome. Martin Luther is thrilled. He gets to go to the holy city. He gets to see all the, the, where the Pope lives, and I get to see all these wonderful things, and what a great holy city. I'm going to be endowed with grace from God because of this awesome thing. When he gets there, he's shocked. The debauchery, the sexual immorality, the 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 absolute lack of dedication to the, to the system and to doing the Mass. And he's just so disillusioned. 
So he comes upon, does what every Catholic does, even do to this day. He comes upon what they call these are pilot steps. And what the Catholic Church said is, we went to Jerusalem and we got the steps from, from uh, Pilate's palace. We brought them back here to Rome. And these are the very steps that Jesus walked up to see Pilate. Whether that's true or not, nobody knows. Um, but they, so they put him there. Well, what every Catholic does, even do it today, is you start on the bottom stair, you kneel on the stair, you say a part of the rosary, you kiss the stair, and you go all the, see how long they are? You go all the way up to the top. So Martin Luther did that. But when he got to the top, he said out loud, who knows if this is right? Who knows if this is the right thing to do? So when he got back to the monastery, he was more neurotic and more psyched out than ever been in his life. And the senior priest there said, you know what? You need to go get a PhD. You're a very bright guy. You just don't get it. That's the problem. Let's send you to get a PhD. So he went to go get his doctorate degree. Reading the Bible all along and having trouble with the Bible and keeping it in consistent with the Catholic faith. Next five-year cycle, the Tower Experience. It's a big, big event in Martin Luther's life. He was up in the Tower studying Romans. And as he's studying Romans, they asked him to do a presentation on Romans. He, his life is transformed by a single verse. Romans 1.17, for it is the righteousness of God, for, it, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And he, it hit him, wait a minute, and it didn't hit him overnight, by the way. He went and read Augustine, and Augustine's probably the greatest theologian in church history. He read Augustine, and it, it started becoming clear to him. We are justified by faith alone. Our justification is by faith alone. And it hit him. And he said, all this stuff, all this confessing and in and about and in and out, I am made righteous by Christ. I have no righteousness within me. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to me. At the cross of Christ was the great exchange where his, his good works went to you, your sins went to him. And it came clear to him. Luther himself, referring to this, said, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Remember Romans 1.17. Then I grasped the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us. By which through grace Grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. Luther was free from the neuroses that he was living under up to then. Luther got it. He understood that there is nothing we did for our righteousness. It's something that was done for us by Christ. So, now what? Now we come upon the next big event in Luther's life. And this is probably the most understood event that happened. The one everybody knows, but everybody clearly misunderstands. 1517, the Catholic Church was selling indulgences. And they were selling indulgences 
it, it wasn't quite as ugly as it's, as it's portrayed in history. There, um, the Pope was building St. Peter's Basilica, and he said, look, if somebody truly believes, if somebody in their deepest heart has repented and really wants to help out, grace will be bestowed, which they thought they could do, um, if they pay indulgences. Well, some salesmen out in the field didn't get the memo from Rome and started um, really overdoing it. So Luther took issue with it. He nails the thesis to the door. Now, most people think Martin Luther nailed the thesis to the door, and that was a reformation. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Here's what happened. Look at the church door. See this? I love this depiction of it. The church door was the faculty bulletin board. This wasn't an act of vandalism. So they didn't have internet. They didn't have texting. They didn't have all that stuff. So everybody went to church every day. So if the faculty wanted to talk to each other, they'd put notes on the door. See those other notes? That's That's what's going on. Luther wrote the theses in Latin. And he wrote it in Latin so nobody could read it except the educated people. He didn't want to make a big deal out of it. He wanted to have this great academic discussion with the, with the fellas, you know, who was going to sit down and say, hey, look at this. And he was taking on the Pope and the, the issues of the indulgences. Well, God wasn't going to allow Luther to hide behind Latin and, and hang low. So some young, enterprising seminary students came upon that door. Imagine Brett, our Brett, coming upon the, the door. And Brett would say, wait. So they read it. And they said, this stuff's awesome. So they translated it to German, unbeknownst to Luther. So that's not enough. A new invention happened about that time, a little thing called the Gutenberg Press. In an incredible act of communication of the 16th century, Luther's thesis was in every hamlet and town in Germany within two weeks. Luther had no desire to be a cause, but he was now a cause. And Luther, Luther took it upon himself then to keep studying and seek going forward. This did not cause a reformation. This just caused a spotlight to shine on Luther. Next big event, 1520. Luther starts writing. He writes three books, the, To the Christian Nobility of the German Nation, on the Babylonian captivity of the church and on the freedom of a, of the freedom of a Christian. He outlined the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, not just priests, and denied the authority of the Pope to interpret or confirm interpretation of the Bible in these books. That was not, now, he's, now he's starting to ruffle some feathers. But what was the major problem? What, what caused the major problem? What caused the split? What caused the split was they confronted Luther. They said, Luther, wait a minute. You're saying you're justified by faith, that you as a sinner get on your knees, accept Christ, you're justified by faith. How does that work if you are a sinner? Because when you're in sin, you separate yourself from Christ. If you die in sin, you go to hell. If you die not in sin, you go to heaven. And that's Catholic Theology 101. And unfortunately, it's much of the Protestant Theology 101 today. But anyways, so Luther answered that with a four word, simple four-word answer. Simul usus et peccator. And um, what that means is, simul, at the same time, ustus is justified, et is an, Peccador sinner, at the same time justified and sinner. And he explained to them, look, 
you're no more worthy of going to heaven when you come out of the confessional than before you went in. You are never good enough to get into heaven on anything you bring or you did or you confessed. It is the great exchange. On the cross, Christ took your sins upon him. He then gave his perfect life to you. That is what saves you. Nothing you did, nothing you will ever do. And as far as your belief that all these works that you do under the Catholic scheme of theology, it's nonsense because it is nothing on us. He's not saying it's okay to sin, but he's saying you remain a sinner. You remain a sinner. You are a justified sinner. That was the last straw for the Catholic Church. That was it. That is theology that split the church. Luther, the wild boar. Um, The papal bull. A papal bull is an edict sent out by the Pope. And the Pope says, okay, you know, he writes out this is a papal bull. It's an edict. Here's what he said. It's almost like he's trying to wake up a genie. I like this. Arise, O Lord, and defend thy cause. A wild boar has invaded thy vineyard. Luther was the wild boar he was talking about. He excommunicated Luther. He said, you're excommunicated. You've got 60 days to recant. Show, show up. So when, when it gets to Luther. Now, get, get, let me get you something clear about Luther. Luther was a bombastic guy. Maybe one of the reasons I love him so much. But he, he was prone to harshness, and he was direct. And So when he got the papal bull, he f- went out in the public square and burned it. You know, a little bit of defiance to the Pope. So they gave Luther six days recant, and they said, okay, we're going to have a trial. 1521. Now, the reason it was in 60 days, it was at the end of 1520 that they gave the papal bull. Early 1521 was a trial of Luther. And it's quite a trial. Um, who was there? The, the emperor was there. Um, emperor Charles V was there. Um, the archbishops are represented the church and state, and they did this great thing. It's in Worms, Germany. We were there um, last Christmas, loved it. We're in Worms, Germany. It's actually spelled Worms, but they pronounce their W's, V's. Worms, Germany. And you could see this picture did a great job depicting the scene. And it's so intimidating. It's so over the top. And they put all of Luther's writings on a table in front of him. And they said, Martin, here's your trial. Did you write this stuff? Do you recant? That was a trial. So um, the first day, Martin Luther kind of danced with him a little bit, the first day of his trial. He said, well, there's a lot of stuff here. What do you mean? What what do you want me to recant? Which one? (laughs) And what what are you talking about? So they went back and forth. They went back and forth. And they finally said, okay, answer non canutum, which means without horns. We want your answer. And our hero choked. His jaw dropped to his chest. And he said, can I have 24 hours to think about it? And they couldn't hear him. They said, excuse me, speak up. And he asked again for 24 hours to think about it. And they sent sent him, okay, we'll see you tomorrow. And I, you know, in reflecting on it, I think that was God's hand um, doing that. Because Luther was all, you know, Luther could at that point think it was about Luther. And it wasn't about Luther. It was about God's cause and God's word. And Luther wrote this sorrowful prayer that night. And, um, you know, it was very long, and he begged God, and he said, God, the cause is yours, not mine. I am yours. Please have me do the right thing. 
So he came back the next day, and they said, okay, what's your answer? And they thought they had him, you know, because he kind of spooked the day before. And the greatest thing, the greatest speech that I think a, a, a Protestant has made, he stands for religious liberty. Now imagine this, you know, we're worried about getting subpoenas. He's worried about going to a pile of logs and getting tied to a stake and burned. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason. See, everybody has scripture. Everybody has scripture they could throw at you. But if it doesn't add up, if it doesn't make sense. So he connected those things. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. He then ends his sermon, I mean his speech, with the greatest statement that really capsulized. In fact, um, if you want to read a biography of Martin Luther, that's the title of it, Here I Stand. It's a great, great book. You should read it. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. That is when the Protestant Reformation started. And it's kind of great. There's a great story about how Luther got out of there. Um, he had a bunch of sympathizers and some buddies. So um, they faked like they were kidnapping him to go take him out and kill him. But they were really his buddies. So they wrapped him up and they gave him some nookies and drug him off. And, uh, but it was a big fake to get him out of there. And they did. And Luther then went and started writing and writing and writing. And, you know, there's, he has so many great writings, I, I commend them to you. But um, Martin Luther is somewhat controversial figure, and he gets a lot of hate mail even to this day. Yes, Martin Luther had character flaws. And you know what? We're doing the one-year Bible right now. A lot of us are reading the one-year Bible and going through the early chapters of Genesis. Good thing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't have character flaws, right? Whoa. I'm reading some of that stuff going, these guys are out of control. They make Luther look like a choir boy. Um, And you can tell by this picture, um, Martin liked to uh, drink his German beer. He was known for that. So, and he was, he had, um, he was incredibly anti-Semitic. These are all character flaws of Martin Luther. It doesn't mean he wasn't a great soldier in Christ's army. We wouldn't have a Protestant church today if not for Martin Luther following the leading of God. So when you, look at, when you take a look at it and how we're faced with religious liberty today, we've got to think like Martin Luther. Martin Luther never engaged in violence. Martin Luther never told anybody, rise up and kill the Pope. Martin Luther simply said, do I follow God or do I follow man? And that's where we are today in America. Do we follow God or do we follow man? And I pray, church brothers and sisters, that we follow God, as our brother Martin Luther did.